This is Bob Bender, host of the Business Side of Music podcast. Check out our show where we talk about all things related to the music industry. We laugh, we share memories, we discuss what's worked and what didn't work. Our industry is always evolving and can never be locked inside a box. From the rookie fresh off the bus to the well-seasoned professional wondering which new direction to take their career, our show covers all the bases. Join us as we chase this elusive animal we like to call the music industry. Check us out at businesssideofmusic.com. Welcome to The Creations, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. When Shutter DeCarche decided that she wanted to start Six Shooter Records, she found that it was going to be difficult to secure funding from outside sources. She didn't have the track record to secure government grants, and banks weren't interested in lending her the money. And when she approached the major labels, she found very little interest there too, so she had to find another way to get her artists into the studio and the label off the ground. Every time somebody sent me a brochure or whatever to sign up for a credit card, I signed up. So I had about 13 credit cards, <laughs> uh, you know, varying in um, limits of, you know, 20000 to 50000 And that is how I funded my business. When I originally contacted Shauna, my plan was to do an episode titled Creating a Record Label. By the time we were finished, though, I realized that there was so much more that she had to share. Whether it was figuring out how to be a manager, run a record label, or mount a music festival, Shauna DeCarche, like so many of the creators in this series, never let obstacles get in her way. Six Shooter is now celebrating their 20th anniversary, and they've become one of Canada's most successful independent labels. And Shauna has become a vocal advocate for women in the music industry. To get to the heart of the story, Shauna takes us back before a time when Six Shooter existed. Well, it was actually more than 25 years ago. I was uh, working on an MBA and I was taking a course in entrepreneurship. And even though I was working on an MBA, it had never occurred to me to go into business for myself. Uh, I grew up in suburban Edmonton and my uh, relatively conservative parents whose idea of what a career was, uh, was a one word thing, like a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a dentist. Um, so business owner, uh, entrepreneur, I guess is one word, but um, that wasn't really um, part of the paradigm growing up. And um, so it was a bit of a revelatory experience, this class. And um, at the same time, I was working for the city of Edmonton. I was the marketing director for Commonwealth Stadium. Uh, which is a 60,000 seat venue. And uh, not too much longer after starting there, I got uh, offered a promotion. And in that same time period, that same week, even though I wasn't really looking for a job, I got uh, three other job offers. And so it was sort of like the heavens were telling me, (laughs) better figure out what you want to do with your life. You're at a crossroads and this is a really important decision. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I, you know, thought a lot about like, you know, I was just on this corporate, corporate ladder and just trying to climb up the ladder and not really thinking about what, where I wanted to go. But um, I remembered the very first job that I had was I worked in theater um, at a company called the Phoenix Theater in Edmonton. And it was a cutting edge 
critically acclaimed small theater company. And when I started working there, I was like, I found my people. <laughs> and it was a very transformative experience for me. I um, really came to appreciate art and the artist and the role that that art plays in our lives and helps us interpret the world. And I wanted to go back to a place where uh, who I was and what I did was one with each other. In the corporate world, um, even though I succeeded very, you know, did very well, it was always a little bit uh, tempered. Like I wasn't necessarily uh, fully allowed to, um, to be myself. Uh, I had to play the game, so to speak. Um, so one of the job offers that uh, I had offered to me like that week was uh, managing my friend's band. And it was the least secure, least paying <laughs> gig out of all of them. But it spoke to me the most about what, uh, what I could do with my life and my career. And um, if I was going to work as hard as I was working, I, uh, you know, I could bet on myself. So uh, that band was Captain Tractor, and uh, they were a very enterprising group of people. I knew them all from the theater that I worked at a couple of years before, and um, they had a really amazing independent spirit, and they were very successful um, all, all by themselves in this island out in the prairies. And um, they, taught me, they taught me a lot. And um, so after graduating from the MBA program, um, my husband and I, he worked, worked, wanted to work in the film industry. And so we decided to make a move and we decided that Toronto was the place for us. So we packed our things and showed up, uh, in Toronto. And that's when I started Six Shooter Records. Well, going back to Captain Tractor for a second, did you, did they have to teach you how to be a manager or, I mean, did you even know what a manager needed to do? I had no idea. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they really taught me a lot. I didn't know anything about touring or publishing or, you know, I knew, I knew a lot about event management. So that part wasn't hard and um, I didn't, didn't know anything about recording. Uh, There's a lot to learn. And uh, I really, uh, hats off to those guys. They're um, so creative. They, they kind of um, pioneers in many ways. Uh, they couldn't get distribution so they started their own distribution company and <laughs> uh, they did things without grants. Um, they didn't have really have access to funding and, you know, um, they toured in Europe and New Zealand and they, you know, they, they started like a, an early Kickstarter program. Like you could send in your check for 20 bucks and um, before the record was made and then your name would appear in the liner notes of the album and things like that. So, I mean, this is pre-internet um, really like the internet existed. And then when it did, they were the first ones to have a website that I have anyone that I knew other than really big companies. Yeah. So they were, um, just really forward thinking and industrious and creative and um, very much a can do attitude. Okay. So, so after you land in Toronto, what motivated you to start six shooter? Well, um, by that time I was also managing, uh, Veal which is uh, Luke Doucette's rock band and um, I'm trying to get them a record deal and not succeeding in that regard. We had, oh, let's take a step back for a second. Hang a second. How did, how did you connect with Veal? I went to Canadian music week in 1999. <laughs> I went to Ted's wrecking yard, uh, the Pacan showcase where 
Veal was performing at midnight and the week events were performing at 1am. I did end up working with the week events for a couple of years after that, but uh, not, not directly after that, but a few, a few years later, I ended up working with the week events as well. Um, but I saw that performance by Veal and it totally uh, inspired me. Um, Luke was very young at the time, 26 years old. And you know, Luke, um, so uh, when he was 26, he looked like he was about 14. <laughs> and uh, this is this little uh, boy man with a giant guitar and, uh, you know, and his heart on his sleeve and, um, you know, sort of balanced by Chang, the drummer who was old, <laughs> way older than me and, um, and kind of scary looking. He, you know, looked like he just got out of prison. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a really interesting really interesting band and I, I love them. And that, that was a huge source of inspiration for me. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were talking about how you started Six Shooter Records. Um, yeah, well, I guess it was, uh, wasn't easy. Uh, I arrived in Toronto kind of fully formed in a way. I never worked ever at another music company, never was anyone's assistant, uh, didn't really know uh, anyone. <laughs> Um, but I was welcomed into uh, the independent community, um, predominantly populated by managers, particular uh, Sudicartier, and um, a number of other, mostly women. Um, Heather Pollock, who managed Sarah Sleen, and Melissa Greiner, who managed By Divine Light, and Sandy Pandia. Yeah, so, uh, so they, they provided me with a community of people. Um, that I learned from and became friends with and uh, got my, like, you know, got established in the music community, but it's very, very much in the independent side. So how did you figure out how to get the record company off the ground? You know, it's not like I came into it with zero skills. <laughs> Did have an MBA <laughs> and a number of years of uh, marketing uh, behind me. And so things like business strategy and, um, budgeting and marketing were not foreign concepts to me. Probably one of the biggest challenges was funding. Um, I didn't really have access to funding when I started Six Shooter. It wasn't until a number of years later that I qualified for funding. And, um, you know, it's especially as a woman, it's very difficult to get funding from a bank, financing from a bank, even difficult to get financing from a major label, um, which is generally how indie labels start is they get an advance from their distributor and they go, they go to work. And um, that, that wasn't really, uh, that wasn't available to me. So how did you fund those early releases? I have, I had a house uh, in Toronto that um, we were, this is before the real estate boom. <laughs> So I bought a house for $190,000 in the East End of Toronto. And um, because I was a homeowner, I had access to credit cards, the most expensive kind of credit. And um, every time somebody sent me a brochure or whatever to sign up for a credit card, I signed up. So I had about 13 credit cards, <laughs> uh, you know, varying in... Um, Limits of, you know, 20000 to 50000 And that is how I funded my business. Wow. So uh, 
Have you been using the slogan, life's too short for shitty music from the very beginning? Yeah. My friend Bobby, who, who uh, I've worked with her for years in the restaurant business, and uh, she's, uh, she came up with that slogan, and I adopted it. I think maybe kind of to her chagrin that I've never paid her a dime for her, <laughs> but I've sold thousands of t-shirts with that slogan on the back of it. <laughs> but yeah, I stole that from her. And uh, the, the, the name, um, I wanted to give the company a name that reflected my Western roots um, that, you know, <clears throat> out West is different than here. Um, it's much newer society and it's very much a pioneer spirit still, even now. And um, so there's a sort of a lot of uh, boxy or... <laughs> That's uh, that Westerners generally um, have that, um, you know, a bit of a maverick air to them that I wanted to find a way to express that. So I uh, came up with the name Six Shooter Records and I got my friend uh, Ty Samaka, who is a singer in a band called the Plaid Tongue Devils out of Calgary. He uh, designed my logo for free as a favor. And he came up with uh, three different designs. And I like the one that with the girl on the horse. That was exactly perfect. Very cool. Now, I, I was wondering, did you have an idea from the very beginning of what kind of music you wanted to focus on? No. Um, it wasn't really about a genre of music. It was more about um, excellence and, and artists who uh, spoke to me or uh, moved me in some way uh, like that sort of cliche expression. Um, I'm not feeling it, man. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if you don't feel it, it's not good. And so that's, uh, basically how I've, how I've done it the whole time is based on how I, how that music makes me feel. I'm wondering if there were any mentors, people who maybe had run labels in the past that, uh, perhaps you went to for some guidance. Well, uh, very early on, when I um, moved to Toronto, I called up Bernie Finkelstein because he was a bit of a hero of mine. He, uh, you know, is the founder of the oldest record label in Canada, True North Records. And I felt like he had a real alignment and understanding of the artist. And he was also staunchly Canadian and staunchly independent. And these, are, these were qualities and um, values of his that I... Uh, admired and also held. And um, so I called him up and he didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> and I phoned him and I said, hi, Bernie, my name is Shauna Descartier and I manage the set. and will you be my mentor? And he uh, was, I think, quite surprised by that, uh, by that phone call. And he so, so took, took, put him off guard a little bit and he said, okay, well, um, call me back in a week. I'll think about it. And so I phoned him back in a week and he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to, he didn't want to like, I don't know, some kind of like blah, blah, blah about not wanting to take any responsibility for having a mentee, I guess. And, um, you know, I didn't really give up. I, um, I got myself on the board finally of the, of SEMA, which at the time was SERPA. And I sat next to Bernie at every meeting and I volunteered for every committee he was on <laughs> and made him be my friend. Um, and we are still friends now. I also uh, worked with Al Mayer for about a year. Uh, he was really helpful to me in, a, in an interesting kind of way. Al's a super smart, super smart guy. 
and he, you know, uh, he, he would see what I needed to do, but he wouldn't tell me, he would ask me questions <laughs> and uh, like force me to find the path myself by asking the right questions. And so that was, uh, that was good. Um, but I would say that mostly my mentors are my peer group. And uh, so there's a, a group of people that I still rely upon today to hash through challenges that I'm having. And, you know, those uh, might include people like uh, Neville Quinlan, um, who is at Tier Music, but he's also one of my artists, and QR Buckle. Uh, Julian Pecan, booking agent. Um, of course, my BFF, Sue de Cartier, uh, super helpful to me. A woman named Colleen Teus. Uh, she is the COO of now, the CEO of The Orchard, but I've known her since 2001. I uh, met her in England. She's a go-to person. And also through my uh, work at SEMA, you know, when, you're, when you serve on a board for that long, you become friends with the other people that you are on the board with. And um, a lot of those people also own independent record labels. And so people like Justin West at Secret City and Kieran Roy at Arts and Crafts and Lisa Lagantenko um, was at Dynalone for much of that time as she's now at the Orchard. Um, these are people that I could call on or it's just like always take my call or always be willing to talk to me about and share information um, with me. And um, so I, I really rely on that peer group. So how did you go about getting distribution for Six Shooter outside of Canada? Um, it's uh, been a pretty interesting journey that way. Um, I first got uh, distribution um, going to Meetem, which is a conference that happens in the south of France in Cannes. Um, I uh, hooked up with a European distributor first, like probably in 2005, and then uh, got my first U.S. distribution deal in 2006. And have been plugging away at trying to make an international impact with my artists ever since. Um, but, you know, with the change in balance uh, between digital and physical, it, I've really seen a change in how our revenues are structured. So, you know, in 2012, or I actually kind of called the ball in 2010, <laughs> When uh, Luke was coming out, Luke said was coming out with a record, and uh, somebody at Warner um, said that they expected that it would ship, you know, three thousand units or something like that. And I was like, okay, this is over. <laughs> if that's all we can ship on this record, then uh, we're we're done. <laughs> but you know, the physical market is very much um, tied to ge geographic markets, whereas the digital market is. Uh, global and the only way to make the money um, is to have that uh, scale. Canada is only three percent of the world music market, so to make um, a record label successful, you have to you have to move outside of Canada. And so, you know, I you know probably in 2012, um, the split of revenues was probably 80 percent domestic and 20 percent international. That split is now 75 percent international and 25 percent domestic. And I expect that that shift will continue until it's 97 and three. Um, you know, as new markets open up, the legitimate non-pirate markets, uh, you know, like for example, China is uh, was a pirate market up until really recently when they decided, okay, we're going to legitimize this market and we're going to start paying 
for streams. And uh, similarly, in Latin America, um, with YouTube and Spotify and other uh, streaming services that are, um, you know, free adjacent, um, but that pay and maybe they don't pay very much, but there's, those are huge markets. And so even though I, uh, my artists don't necessarily appeal to a Chinese, my artists, like, to a Chinese market, there is still uh, money coming in from those places and from all over the world. And that's, that's just going to continue. Well, how, how specifically have streaming services been able to affect the international opportunities for you and your artists? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot more data available, um, you know, and, and also more found listeners. Like, um, say, for example, the band that we have, uh, one of the bands, our biggest band, the Dead South, they have, uh, you know, now 200 million streams on YouTube of their, uh, of their top song, which is an incredible incredible number. And um, because of the success there, um, which is translated into success on other formats, um, their single is Gold in America. I don't know if there is any other independent label out of Canada that has a gold single in America without the help of a multinational or at least an American company. So um, that's a real milestone. And, um, you know, um, recently... I guess about a year and a half ago, I went on a trade mission to Mexico City and Colombia. And um, before I went, I was like, oh, I'm, and at this, at this time, the, the view count on, this, on YouTube was about 100,000 streams. And I said, you know, so before I go, I'm going to look into seeing like, you know, how many streams of those come from Mexico? How many of those come from Colombia? And at the time, there were one, mil- one million streams in Mexico of this song. So that's a market, you know million streams of any, of any YouTube, uh, in, you know, in any market is, uh, significant. So, you know, not, not that the band has been able to get to Mexico, but realizes like, oh, there is an appetite for this band there. And, um, people are able to hear about this band because of the digital market. If it was physical, it would probably, no one would ship the record to Mexico. But, um, you know, the, the band has toured Eastern Europe and Russia and, you know, um, a number of markets that just would not be open to them if it wasn't for the digital space. So how about the Interstellar uh, Rodeo Festival? Can you talk a little bit about how you got that going and why? Well, um, I came into about $200,000. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, I've never had this much money all in one place at one time before. <laughs> what am I going to do? And I thought, oh, okay, well, I could, you know, I could invest it into a bunch of records and eventually lose it all, or I could try something different. And um, I'd always kind of wanted to do a music festival. And the venue that I had in mind was this venue in Edmonton, the Heritage Amphitheater in William Harlack Park. Um, I had done an event there with Captain Tractor. We did an album launch party for their album Celebrity Traffic Jam there in 1999. It's like, this venue is amazing. And uh, so I decided that I was going to try to do a music festival. And that's where it was going to be. And it seems funny to try to do that remotely when I was living in Toronto, but it's actually... For many reasons, it was easier for me to pull off a festival in Edmonton than in Toronto. So I, uh, at Christmas, I was visiting my family and I sat them all down and I said, okay, I'm going to try this thing and I need your help. And um, as my brother puts it, they were voluntold. 
So like uh, I put one brother in charge of the front gates and, you know, my sister, one of my sisters in charge of backstage hospitality and my other sister in charge of admin and my other brother worked at the bar and my niece worked at merch and I, <laughs> uh, so I gave everybody jobs. My parents, my mom ran the, um, the info booth and also I had a lot of friends still because I didn't move from Toronto until I was uh, 34. So I had a very much established uh, network of people who were in jobs that meant something and had some skills. And so I, I called on all of them and largely like my friends in Captain Tractor, like Scott Peters, um, who's the mandolin player in Captain Tractor. He's my production manager. And I got Chris Winters to um, be the MC, and I got Amy Hill to be the marketing person. And <clears throat> we put this, uh, this together and it was a, I mean, it lost money. I lost all 200,000 of those dollars that I had, <laughs> but it was it, evident that it was just an immediate hit. Like people loved it and the media loved it and the community loved it and the artists loved it and everyone loved it. So that gave me the inspiration to continue with it. And then the second year, I was lucky to be able to book Alabama Shakes. And right before they kind of took off and um, I, I booked them for like uh, probably like it's just a fraction of what they would be worth today. And um, just, it was just a, the right, the right timing and um, booked them. And then they were on Saturday Night Live and da 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 da. And um, so that um, sold out that, that year. And so um, that, that sort of generated enough cash flow to keep going. So I'd like to finish this off by talking about social consciousness, if you don't mind. I, I know that earlier this year you posted a letter on the website talking about steps your company was planning to take to deal with a situation that came to the forefront for you guys with Danny Kenyon of the Deep South. And I'm curious as to why you thought it was important to make a public statement. I mean, certainly that was the, um, the first Me Too situation that we've had to deal with as a company. Um, you know, and as far as scandals go, it was maybe not the most scandalous uh, thing that could ever happen. But, you know, we are, first of all, like Six Shooter is um, maybe up until recently the only Canadian record label that is owned and operated by women. So there comes a certain responsibility with that, uh, you know. And, and, and add, ask your question, like, why is that? <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. But just, um, it is really important uh, to me as a feminist and to the music community, the women in the music community, that Six Shooter be a leader in this regard. Because if we, if we don't handle it in the best way that we can figure out how to handle it, we kind of let down all women. Um, maybe people expect douchebaggery <laughs> from male-dominated <laughs> companies, but uh, they don't expect that from Six Shooter. And um, so, you know, it was a really um, all-consuming uh, process. A lot of discussions that, you know, and a lot of thought went into um, the best way to handle that. And, um, you know, when you look at, um, say, for, like, you know, the Me Too movement, you know, a lot of the sort of tall poppies um, have been taken down, like the Headleys or the Gian Gomeshis or whatever. Um, but now we're getting more into the roots of it. And um, this is uh, systemic. Um, the, kind, the kinds of experiences um, that, that women have, all women have them. And um, what, what can we do? 
to try to combat that. And, and part of that is uh, through awareness and training. Um, so we, we did bring on this wonderful facilitator, Stacy uh, Forrester from Goodnight Out in Vancouver. We had taken some training from her last year with Interstellar Rodeo on how to create a safer space um, at our festival. And um, I thought, oh, this is really valuable. This is valuable and this is applicable to our artists. And some of our artists are already very much leaders in that realm. I don't know how familiar you are with July Talk and their um, work um, that they do to create as safe a space as possible at their shows, inclusive space. So, you know, trying to translate those values and understand where, um, where you know, I guess the why of it. Why, why does uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault, uh, why is it so ubiquitous? And um, how can we all learn about that and work to change, to change that? So that's one of the steps, but it's not just in with respect to gender issues. It's also racial issues. Um, when we started working with Tanya Takak in 2013, uh, that was a game changer for Six Shooter in so many ways. But that was uh, really uh, working with her really set me on a journey of learning about racism in Canada and um, the history behind it and how it still is perpetuated today and working um, to try to reduce that change to change to change people and it's a big job 2020 has been a very difficult year in the music business and it certainly has affected shauna and her company but she admitted to me that after years of the management division and artist touring keeping the label afloat it was the label and its releases that helped keep the business going for six shooter this year in its 20-year history, Six Shooter has built a critically acclaimed roster, and you can check out all of their releases at SixShooter.com. Because they're right. Life is too short to listen to shitty music. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or maybe are interested in advertising on The Creationist, please email Podcast at gmail.com. And if you have a chance, please follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love to hear from you. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. (laughs) 